Welcome to Counterbalance Conversations, the show that engages your imagination with discussions about emerging topics and stories of healing, change-making, resilience, and passion. Here is your host, Dr. Melissa L. Strasser. Hello, and welcome to Counterbalance Conversations, and Happy New Year to all my listeners and to my guest, Leslie Rasmussen. She is an award-winning author of the novel After Happily Ever After. She was born and raised in Los Angeles and graduated from UCLA. She went on to write television comedies for Gerald McCraney, Burt Reynolds, Roseanne Barr, Norm MacDonald, Drew Carey, as well as The Wild Thornberries and Sweet Valley High. After leaving the business to raise her boys, she obtained a master's degree in nutrition and ran her own business for 10 years. Recently, she's written over 20 essays for Huffington Post and Maria Shriver and spoken on panels discussing empowering women in midlife. Leslie is a member of the Writers Guild of America, as well as a Women in Film and Women's Fiction Writers Association. In her free time, she loves to read, exercise, hang out with friends, and she lives in Los Angeles and is married with two sons. Welcome, Leslie. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. I am so happy that you're here. And first and foremost, I want to congratulate you. I saw this uh, right before we came on that you just won another award for your book. I did. It was very, I was thrilled this morning when I saw it. It was for the Kindle Book Awards and it was a finalist. So I was very happy about that. The book's won a lot of awards, which has been really rewarding. That is fantastic. I was so excited to see that because as we were talking before the show, I am in the I'm almost finished with the book. I was trying really hard to get through it before the um before the show tonight and I am just enthralled with all of the topics and the fantastic characters in the book and it's really funny and fun and I just really am enjoying um, following these characters through their journey. Oh, thank you so much. That's exactly why I wrote it. <laughs> that somebody would find it fun and also relate to it. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your story. Well, you? you went through my whole bio, but yeah. basically over the last few years, I closed my business. Um, I was a nutritionist for basically 10 years. Um, I owned my own company and I did that while my kids were sort of growing up. And I wrote essays for Huffington Post, mostly Huffington Post, but I did a few other online sites. And the thing I loved about writing those essays is they were personal essays about my husband, about my parents, about my kids, but they all had humor in them. But I wanted to relate to my audience to let them know they weren't alone and some of the stuff that their husband does drove them nuts and that was okay (laughs) and their kids going off to summer camp the first time. And I wrote some nutrition essays also. And while I was doing that, it was so rewarding to go back to writing. Um, I love writing and I liked the nutrition, but my passion was writing. So basically, while all this was going on, at the, towards the end, probably about the eighth year of my um, time as a nutritionist, I decided that I wanted to just possibly write a nonfiction book. 
So I put together this survey and I put it online and I sent it to all my friends and it was going to be sent in anonymously. And it was supposed to be, it was a bunch of questions actually about their relationships, whatever those, their partners, their, um, how they dealt with conflict, how they dealt with sex in their relationships, their long-term relationships, romance, so many things, money, everything. And when they came back and I started looking at all these stories, I started to realize there were so many similarities with these women. And I was also talking to a lot of moms at the time, and we were all discussing how, what were we going to do at the second part of our life? And what happens when our kids go off to college and they leave the house and where are we going to be? And are we happy in our careers? Some of them were not happy in their marriages. And so I started to see these similarities with these women. And I thought, well, you know, my background is fiction. So it might be better if I tried to write a fiction book, make my protagonist basically a combination of all these women. And her problems are similar to what everybody's going through. Mm -hmm. And we all had aging parents. So it's sort of like she's in the sandwich generation. And her name is Maggie, and she is dealing with her daughter, who's 17, pulling away and going off to college soon, a husband who she's been with forever. She has a great relationship, but he's going through a bunch of stuff, and he's not communicating. And she also has aging parents, and her father is having all these issues, and they all hit her really hard. And so it's kind of how she figures out who she is again through Mm -hmm. dealing with all these issues. It is really kind of challenging, you know, when you've become the mom role, the the wife, or even the daughter or son. I mean, I don't want to leave out the guys. Um, It's really difficult that when you put your life in kind of everyone else's hands, so to speak, for so many years, that other people's needs and desires for your life actually – come before your own and you do really lose yourself in becoming the soccer mom or dad or the daughter who's, you know, caring for those aging parents, whether they're, um, you know, just aging and just having different needs than they did and being a little bit less independent as well as, you know, all the way up to the ones that are in, you know, nursing homes or assisted care facilities or uh, like my mom in a hospice care um, several years ago. And it's a really, um, you hit this point in your life, and I think you're seeing that in your protagonist and within your friends, that I think all of us hit that place where we go, wow, what about me? Is it my turn? Exactly. When is my turn going to come? Exactly. Because you do have a lot of that when you're raising your kids. I mean, I you know, I would have gone back to writing television, but I didn't Mm -hmm. want to do that because my kids would never have seen me. Um, I wrote sitcoms. The hours were terrible. And my husband also is um, a producer, writer. And, and, you know, right now he's on a sitcom, but he's also done drama. And, you know, when you have hours that are bad of both your parents, it's Mm -hmm. not good. And and it affects the kids. So I didn't want to do that. And I needed a job where I could also make my own hours, have my own company, be there for my kids when they got home from school. 
but it wasn't my strong passion. I enjoyed it, but it still wasn't my passion. So writing essays for Huffington Post sort of helped that, but also pushed me into thinking I should try to write a book. And I think that's fantastic. Um, So what, um, so we've talked about what inspired you. So, but it sounds like you have been an advocate for empowering women and for a very long time. And how did you, how do you, how does that manifest in your life other than your writing? Do you work in other arenas with that? Well, I've been doing panels. Um, I met two other authors and we've been doing panels together talking about how in midlife, people say things like, oh, if you change something, it's a midlife crisis. And that's not really, that's a very negative term. But if you look at it as midlife empowerment and whether that means, you know, you leave, like I knew tons of people that hit 50 and especially women. And Mm -hmm. they said, I'm going to leave my marriage because Mm -hmm. I need a change and I need something different. And this doesn't serve me anymore. And people would say, oh, that's a crisis. But it wasn't a crisis. They had thought it through for years and they made that decision to leave. And it's sort of the same thing with careers. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it happened to me. I mean, I changed my career from television, had my kids, changed it to nutrition. And then as my kids got older, decided to go back to writing. And that was not a crisis. That was just me saying, you know what? It's now my time. And mm-hmm. I want to redefine myself or go back to the definition I always had of myself of being a writer right. and do something like that. So... I, the panels we've been doing is speaking to women about the fact that it's okay to take care of yourself. You know, there's self-nurturing, there's self-love, there is just changing things in the middle of your life. And you still have so much life to live just because you hit 45 or 50 or 60 or 70. I know writers that are, you know, just starting to write at 60 and 70 years old. Which I think is amazing. I'm always inspired by those individuals Because it's like, so a lot of people call it like your second act instead Mm -hmm. of midlife. It's just your second act. Your life just looks different. And you have a little bit of maturity under your belt. And so the world looks a little different. Leaving a job does not feel like a terrible disaster as it would have in your 20s and 30s. And you realize that, oh, well, you can always find a job but you will have like a finite amount of time to pursue your passion. Um, so I think you, I, I think looking at it from an empowerment standpoint is absolutely the best way I know this year. Um, you and I talked about it and the listeners know this year, this past year, I left my corporate job and embarked on doing this radio show uh, relaunched uh, and really focused on my coaching and consulting business. And, you know, and so now I'm coming back around in the, in the next year into starting to navigate myself into the writing world. I'm inspired by the five, the fab five that we've been, I've been interviewing <laughs> on here. You guys have kind of sucked me in and not really, but I mean, I've always had that vision for myself, like you were saying, this was my original vision that I was going to be a writer. And I've always been a shadow artist, shadow writer, and helping speakers and that kind of thing. And you're probably I'm redefining, (laughs) I'm redefining who I am 
by what I originally wanted to do. So I don't really think this is a crisis in any of these individuals. Now, some people it does look like a crisis because they don't take a really pragmatic approach to it. They kind of blow up their life and then go, okay, what now? Um, And I think women really take a really pragmatic approach. I'm not saying men don't, but I'm just saying, I think women, at least the, the many women that I've talked to, they yeah. really thought about things long before they ever took a step any which way, whether it was their marriage or whether it was their career. They yes. really thought about it for a very long time. I know I did because yes. you start to think like, well, what does that mean? And does, you know, authoring a book, it takes a long time. Is that doesn't make any money? Is that okay? And you have to think about so many different things. Mm-hmm. And there is a piece of, um, I, you know, I'm just going to talk about women right now, but there's a piece of us sure. that feels guilty. Like we're putting ourselves first and we're not just taking care of everybody else. And I know for me, I had to really learn to say it's okay not to just run and take care of everybody else. I mean, my sons are now 23 and 25, Mm -hmm. but when they were late high school, I started to think they can do all this stuff. They can do their own laundry. I don't have to just take care of everybody all the time. Right. And that was yeah. important. And I think that is a um, very inspiring for other women because that is part of it. That is um, part of that guilt, um, that guilt piece. I mean, I think as at our at our age right now, and I know Gen Xers, we are kind of ingrained, even though we are a little bit against the grain. And, and you know, people say, "Oh, Gen Xers are very." Uh, nihilistic, so to speak. (laughs) But um, I think we still have some of that veteran generation or the greatest generation influence that is like you work and you take care of your family and that's your role, especially from a women's standpoint. And having that guilt and being hearing other women say, it's okay for your kids to do their own laundry. It's okay to not be the caretaker. Um, is especially if you came from a more traditional household. Exactly. And like my household, my mother, I considered her superwoman. She, um, when my youngest sister, there's three sisters. When my youngest sister went off to, I think it was kindergarten. My mom went back, got her degree, became a teacher. And then she decided she wanted to be a therapist, but she always had dinner she, we may have put it in the oven, but it was always made. And she would say, oh, and we all ate together every night. We'd wait for my yep. father. We'd all eat together. And my mom up until a certain age did our laundry and all that kinds of stuff. So I thought of her superwoman and I thought, oh my God, how can, I can't do all that. I can't yeah. work and do this and take care of the kids. And I did, but I grew up with somebody who just was constantly learning and going back to school and doing all those kinds of things. And that's kind of intimidating sometimes. I would imagine. I would imagine. Um, I grew up with a mom that was a single mom Mm. and she was putting the food on the table. She started college um, while I was in high school and finished. We graduated like six months apart. I graduated six months before her Um, and it took her like 10 years, but she was consistently going to school. She was doing you know, uh, all the household taking care of everything that needed to be taken care of. And then you have my grandmother who was, um, 
very much the 50s housewife, but she had that 70s edge of women's empowerment. Mm -hmm. Um, So she took care of everything. She was one of the women that worked part-time jobs and got the kids off to school and ironed everything, including (laughs) sheets and socks. And, um, you know, and you go, wow, how can I do all of those things? So it really sets an example, you know, and it took her a long time to get to the point where she was doing what was really good for her. Uh, Same thing for my mom. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. You look at it and go, wow, that's how, that's my example. Yeah. So to, to step out and, you know, take on writing this book or take on all of the different things that you have, I really admire that because it takes a lot of working through that programming to, to do it. And I think it's fantastic. And I think it's a, um, an example for other women to say, okay, yeah, it's all right for me to do this. And I think there's a lot of our generation that are still feeling really guilty about doing that right now. And a lot of times, I mean, at least our generation, like with my mom, she had my grandmother who would come over and watch us and help her out. And in my house, my mom and dad moved away right before I had kids. They retired and moved. My sisters moved. And my husband's family, I'm in Los Angeles, but my husband's family's from Connecticut. So that's where he's from. So we didn't have any family here. So it wasn't like I could rely on my mom to come over and help me out with something. And she did have that. So when she did go off to school or work at night, she had my grandmother here until my dad got home from work. So, you know, that generation also had a lot more support, I think. And because families stayed in the same place a lot of times. They did. And they don't anymore. Yes, absolutely. And I know that was the case with my family. I mean, we were very rarely um, apart, even when I moved down here to Florida. Part of that decision was my mom was here. And so when I moved down here, it was to provide support for her and um, and my dad. And it was a good situation for me whenever I moved from Washington, D.C. area as well. And so it was, you know, there was always that connection and then once she passed, it's kind of strange because all of my family is in New York or some other wow. places. And I go, wow, you know, there's not that little bird on your shoulder anymore. So it's a very interesting dynamic when you don't have that. It's a different feeling. Uh, so for you, you had that in, in a way an advantage because you had to kind of step up a little earlier, I think, into those different roles and you were able to make a few more decisions that were maybe a little more progressive than some of us uh, chose to. Yeah, that's probably true. And But what's interesting is even though my parents, my dad passed away five years ago, mm-hmm. but he had a lot of medical issues for about yeah. a, for like maybe five years before that. And yes. my mom was his caretaker. And even though they didn't even live near me, I was still going there all the time, flying. They were in Northern California. First they moved to Arizona, then they moved to Northern California. So I was going to Arizona or I was going to Northern California. And it's interesting how the rules change. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, when you are young and then you have kids, you don't always feel, even if you have kids, you don't always feel like an adult. And I think the time that I felt the most like an adult was when my parents started to come to me. 
for things. And yeah. then I, I wasn't parenting them, but I was helping them in a way that was very adult-like. And they yeah. were asking me for advice. And that was a real sort of shocker. And, you know, I had to do a lot of things to help them out, even from far yeah. away. And my in-laws too. Yeah, I had a lot. I had someone ask me about a week ago, uh, and it was one of those just general conversations sitting around sitting around the fire over the holidays. We were just kind of chit-chatting, and one of the ladies asked me, she said, when was the first time you felt like an adult? I had to really think about that. I, yeah. I'm like, I don't, I'm not really sure. I know that all of a sudden I was grown up. And that's probably how you, I would imagine that's how you're feeling when they're coming to you and asking you for advice and really respecting your opinion yeah. on what you should do and take those next steps. So that made you very much part of that sandwich generation because you had the, I was not um, truly in the sandwich generation. Um, I, I didn't have that experience the way most people do. Um so how did that feel for you to be in that sandwich generation? And was that part of the um, inspiration for the characters in your book? It was. Um, I felt like I had my kids and I they were my main thing that I was really taking care of. But mm -hmm. when I started to help my parents and yeah. as my dad got more and more issues, I started to see myself almost pulled a little bit um, mm -hmm. at times. As my kids got older, that got a lot less. And mm -hmm. I had talked to so many people that also had aging parents and parents that had dementia. And my in-laws right now have a lot of issues with dementia. Yeah. And we just visited them. And you see this decline mm -hmm. and you're helping them, you know, whether it's financially or whether it's emotionally. And so I thought, you know, the book the, the essays that I had written for Huffington Post, in fact, I wrote one about when the day that I figured out I was an adult, but yeah. the essays that I've written for them have really been a lot about that and about aging parents and kids and all these kinds of things. And so I realized that when I was going to write this book, I wanted my character to be dealing with things that are real to life. You know, yes. they say, write what you know. This is not a um, autobiography in any way, shape, or form. No, None of no. the characters are exactly any person, but they are situations. And mm -hmm. the father mm -hmm. in the book, as he goes through his emotional and mental and physical things, um, I did a lot of research. I met with a neuropsychologist. I also joined a Facebook group, and they allowed me to listen to caregivers and um, to just like take situations that mm. happened and make them into my character because I wanted it to be as realistic as possible. And I wanted Maggie, the protagonist, to be dealing with this in a realistic mm. way. You know, she wants to find herself again, but she's got all these other people pulling on her. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I see what my friends are going through right now with whether they have one or two parents still alive and running back and forth and doctor's appointments and worrying about them. I mean, now to some extent, even though my mom, she's about to turn 85, she's a dynamo. Wow. She travels, she belongs to every organization. I mean, she's still really doing well, 
Yeah. But she still needs help, you know, whether if it's on the computer or whatever it is, she still right. needs to talk to us and get help. And my kids actually need less help now, but yeah. they're still kids, even if they're 23 and 25. So you're still there for them. Yeah. So yes, it did really make me think when I was writing these characters that I wanted the husband to be similar to other people's husbands. Um, yeah. The inspiration for the book was like I said about all these other people, but there was one specific thing in the book that was came from my friend's life and yeah. the husband doing certain things came from my friend's life that she was living through. And I thought they were very interesting how yeah. the husband and the wife were relating. So that piece of it is probably the only thing it's actually the main thing that is from somebody I know the father yeah. in the book I had written. And then I have a very close relation, had a very close relationship with my father. And when he passed away, he didn't get to read the book because I hadn't finished it. And I know he would have loved it. Yeah. So I dedicated it to him. But I, I loved also your went, dedication, oh, by thank the way. You. And that was so my father. <laughs> um, but I, but I also went back in and tailored the character to more my father, something my father would have said, some of the humor my father had. Um, because at that point, I kind of wanted to honor him. Yeah. And the relationship between Maggie and the father is similar to the relationship between myself and my father. Although my father yeah. did not have the same medical issues. He was, yeah. his brain was sharp till the day he passed away. Yeah, that I was, it was interesting because I was wondering if the father was kind of tailored to your father because I was, I read the dedication and then I could almost hear that. Uh, I could feel that vibe in the relationship yeah. and that voice within uh, the father character in, in uh, after happily ever after. And yes. it was just fantastic. And, and it had such a, a great bit of humor in your dedication. And I loved it so much. And my um, father had very dry humor. And so that's what I wanted to put in after he was gone. That was, I mean, that was fantastic. After the break, uh, so we're coming up on our break. So after the break, I would love to continue uh, the conversation around maybe empty nesting and um, how maybe you were trying to find yourself some of the tools maybe that you use. Sure. And then we'll come back in uh, as right after this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. 
If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. You are tuned into Counterbalance Conversations with Dr. Melissa L. Strasser. Find out more about Dr. Melissa by visiting counterbalancecoach.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, welcome back to Counterbalance Conversations. I'm here with Leslie Rasmussen, and we are talking about her book, After Happily Ever After. And uh, we left before the break talking about uh, her relationship with her father and um, how she had tailored the uh, the character in the book, the father character, um, to kind of have the same voice as her dad. And, um, Leslie, we were talking during the break about how so many of the relationships have changed during COVID and how individuals who are trying to make that shift in midlife are finding it a little more challenging, uh, now to make that, make that shift. Yes. It's, it's been, COVID has really been hard for so many people because Mm -hmm. it makes you afraid to see your parents. And, you know, to go help them or take care of them because you're so scared they're going to get something. I mean, thank God we now have vaccines and boosters and all those kinds of things. But still, I mean, you know, with Omicron, you just don't know. And I think so many, especially elderly, so many people were isolated. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know when I talked to my mom during the beginning of this, I mean, now she's back out doing things, but everything was on Zoom. And, you know, for somebody older, especially they had to really learn Zoom, which is technically that's not that easy for them. And they felt she felt very isolated for a while because she couldn't see her friends. Everybody was afraid. Nobody wanted to go to the dog park and hang out or do anything. Right. And I know for me, I felt very isolated, too, because there wasn't anything to say either. So you weren't like saying, Hey, I'm going to text these people all day long and tell them what's going on in my life. Cause there wasn't a lot going on in any of our lives. Right. And it right. made it really hard. Yeah. I was fortunate in a couple of ways. So fortunate and unfortunate and some depending on your per your uh, perception of this, but I lived in Florida, so there's a lot to do outside. There weren't as many re- restrictions, um, which I don't know, there was a large debate, but it was what it was. So I was very, very fortunate in the fact that I wasn't as isolated, but I still, I went to, I came back from vacation. I had went to Sedona, came back on the 20th of May and they said, come pick up your computer because you're now working from home. We're shutting down all the facilities. And so I started working from home and have been working at home since then. And for an introvert like myself, that was amazing (laughs) um, for about two months. And then it became very challenging living, you know, 
in an isolated environment alone. So I was kind of like a lot of the, the seniors and everybody was worried about people with kids and everything. So the individuals who lived alone really did not get a lot of, I don't want to say attention, but there wasn't a lot of uh, care and concern, you know, directed. So that included a lot of the older people as well. Um, And we were lucky because we had, like I said, a lot of outside things you can do here. Um, And so we ended up doing that once everyone felt safe enough to mask up and, you know, go wherever we were going. See, I'm in Los Angeles and Los Angeles, when they, we shut down at first, I mean, I'm pretty much an introvert also, but at first I loved it because it forced yeah. me to do nothing. I couldn't go yeah. anywhere because we were completely shut down. There weren't restaurants. There wasn't anything. So for those, whatever it was, I don't remember if it was two months or whatever it was, yeah. it was like, oh, wow, my life got quiet, which was really nice. And this book wasn't out yet because the book came out in April when we first shut down, but I was excited about that. And then as time went on, you know, I I live in California, so there's nice weather. So we would go out and we take long walks, but nothing was really open. I mean, we didn't have museums. We didn't have, and, but the freeways were amazing. You could get anywhere in five minutes. And it was so wonderful because we have so much traffic here. Yeah, that that was really fun. But like you said, there were so many parents dealing with kids that that was very hard on the parents. They were basically homeschooling them. Yes. And like you said, that they didn't get to see the grandparents of those kids or their parents. And those people were pretty isolated. And that's why we started doing this Zoom with my sisters and my mom every week just to be on Zoom, just to see each other. Yeah. Because it helped my mom a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic. I know that uh, my dad really kind of was resistant to, you know, the the uh, quarantining and things like that. And it was really difficult for him because he's very social. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a social bug, like mm-hmm. your mom. And yeah. um, so it was very difficult for him um, to do you know, anything that was to have anything shut down. And it was very frustrating for him. And he also travels a lot like your mom. And um, so I saw that as a struggle for him. But what I loved about it is for a year, I was able to get quiet. I was able to do the things that I was able to recover from a lot of things that had been happening because we had had Hurricane Michael come through here. And so everybody was really tired. And so for about six months, everyone was very settled here um, and doing the things that needed to get done. So that really facilitated a lot of that recovery effort. Um, And it allowed you to rest your mind and rest your body from all of those recovery efforts. Um, But it also gave me the opportunity to do a lot of that deep inner work and this year, coming into my 50th year, I would just like we were talking about, I was coming up on that midlife empowerment and how do I want my life to look in the second act, as a lot of people call it. And, you know, how can I make this look completely different? So I, it was very fortunate. I was very fortunate that I was able to do that. And what I'm starting to see is a lot of other people are doing the same thing. They're saying, uh, especially when they're talking about the um, the breakdown in the employees not having an, the employment 
and they and they're saying people are there's low unemployment and people aren't coming back to the workforce. And it's because they've started side hustles or become um, writers or they have found ways to make money in an entrepreneurial way. And so employers are really not competing against unemployment. They're competing against entrepreneurship. Yeah. And people are happier. And they found all of that during COVID. I mean, my husband, who normally went off to work every day, he was home, working from home. And, you know, we have a guest house, so he was out there and I was working in the house, but it was really nice. We had lunch together every day. And I know that like COVID, they said um, there were more people splitting up and getting divorced. But in my case, it actually brought us closer together because his hours were always crazy and he was not home as much. And now he was home more so we could get, you know, talk all the time. And it was really nice. But I also noticed that I could not remember what day it was at any point. I slept later. I started staying Uh up late at night because what were you getting up for? You know, I mean, I worked out. I still worked out every single day at home Mm -hmm. um, because I couldn't go to any classes or anything. But I could not remember what day anything was. And I would sit there and think, is it Friday? Is it Saturday? And does it matter? Like nothing mattered what day it was. You know, it was crazy. I absolutely agree with that. The funny thing was I couldn't figure out why I was really, I was productive, but I wasn't as productive as I should be, you know, being, you know, in a quiet environment and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then one day I had to go to the store or something and then come home and, and started working right after that. And I ended up having shoes on all day. Because in Florida, you're like either barefoot or flip-flops all the time unless you go to work. And I figured out and I started asking about it on some of the job boards. And they're like, oh, yeah, if I don't put my shoes on, I am super unproductive. There's something about that yeah. just active. Yeah. Um, you have to get dressed no matter what because otherwise yeah. you're just living in pajamas or your sweats. You know, my kids were doing that. It was yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. It was fantastic. Forward. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was, it was funny because people started finding these little things that were their, uh, their touch points that said, Oh, this turned something on in my brain that says, okay, we're working now. And so yeah. everybody kind of found their own cadence and I really mm-hmm. enjoyed seeing that. Yeah, um, I did too. And I also found like, it, like I said, it was really, really quiet for a while. But then I said, you know what, I'm just going to write my second book because this is going to give me something to do. And it's, I'm at home working anyway, and it was quiet. And I thought this was the time to really start pushing through and start writing again. Absolutely. I mean, that, I mean, that's fantastic. So when is your next book? Um, When do you think it will be out? I don't know yet. Um, I'm not sure who the publisher is going to be yet. I'm sort of like, not there yet. Yeah. I am editing and I am working on it. It's not yeah. quite done, but yeah. it's almost done as far as okay. like first draft and all that kind of stuff, but I'm still, yeah. you know, playing with it and all that kind of stuff. So cool. I hope to have it out. And I mean, books take forever to publish. So mm-hmm. when you find a publisher, they rarely say, yeah, it's going to be published in the next six months. It's usually a, this book took a year and a half from the date I'd signed up with the publisher. Oh, wow. So it's a long, so it's been time. a long journey for you. Yeah, it's a long time. It took the first book took me a long time to write because I was learning how to do it. I, I knew how to write scripts. I did not know how to write a book. So it took me a long time. This second yeah. book is not taking that long just because I now know exactly how to do it. Yeah. So you have all the tools in your toolbox. Yes. 
So is there, um, for all the aspiring art, uh, authors out there, are there one or two things? Um, I'll ask you like, for the audience a little bit later about a couple of things you would like to send them away with. But for aspiring authors who are thinking, maybe I'll write that book, or maybe are there a couple of tips or tricks that you would give them? I would say, first of all, if you're even thinking about it, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, just start writing notes. Um, Mm -hmm. Write down, if it's nonfiction, write down whatever you think, you know, something will be that you want to discuss. If it's fiction, write scenes or write even just, I see a scene here and I see these people talking about this. And eventually, if you do that enough, it will start to find its own world and you'll start to see exactly where it's going and what you want to write. I would also say, and this is hard right now, but although there is a lot virtually, I would do conferences. I would listen to other writers, not just read, which is super important, but also to listen to writers and listen to their process and how they worked. And not to be afraid that something's going to take you a long time because you don't know what you're doing. And if you've never written a book, and so it might take a long time, but just doing things in increments and baby steps, you'll eventually start to see exactly what you're doing. And you'll think, oh, wow, this is turning into something and just do it. You know, everybody, you know, so many people talk about, I want to write a book. I want to write a book, but they never write a word down. Yeah. So I think that's really important is to just try to do it. And the last thing I would say is find people that you you respect because writers are amazing online. I mean, I have contacted writers online and talked to them online and they will write you back on things like Instagram and things like that. If you really write to them and tell them, look, I'm writing a book and I just want to ask you a question. I mean, you can't, you know, ask them everything, but if you have questions about their process, lots of people will respond. That's fantastic. I'm actually um, listening to some of those now myself, you know, because a lot of them are on some of these different platforms where they've done classes that they're, Mm -hmm. or talks that you can actually access at a pretty reasonable price compared to what writing conferences used to be. Yes. To see some of these faces and some of the individuals, they become much more accessible than they were in the past. Exactly. And you can, they are accessible. And I mean, I went to a lot of conferences, which is better, but if you can do it online, that's at least something good. That is fantastic. So did you use, um, and this is going to sound very old school, but I know a lot of (laughs) authors still do this too. Do you use the note card method, the sticky note method, or do you use like a combo of technology to, to write? I use, when I'm writing an outline, I would uh-huh. do cards. Uh, I'll yeah. do the cards because sometimes I don't know where something's going to go. Mm-hmm. So I will do cards. Um, I do sometimes, depending on the scene I'm writing, if it's a really tough scene, I will take pad to paper, I mean, pen to paper, and I will literally uh-huh. just write it out and just keep writing and writing and writing and then type it up and edit as I go. If it's yeah. a scene that I really know what I'm, where I want to go with it, then I'll just sit at the computer and write it. But I rewrite a lot too. And I also edit as I go. Um, I'll read it. I also read everything out loud. So I can hear the voice and I can hear the way the dialogue is going. So there's not extra words in there. And so I do that. And then when I'm completely done with a book, I start over and I read it all out loud. 
And that's partially to proof because proofing, when you read it out loud, you actually find things more than if you're just reading it because your brain will say, oh, that says the word and, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it says the word band or whatever, you know, but your brain will see it a certain way. So if you read it out loud, it works really well. Oh, that's awesome. Because you have um, such a a breadth of experience with the writing, even on the screenplay side of it, Mm -hmm. that I'm sure that came in extremely handy, That especially that tip. And I know a lot of people that have been listening to the show are saying, oh, I'm working on a screenplay, or I have a couple of people who are just like, I'm loving all of your authors being on here because... You know, I'm doing X, Y, Z. So I thought it would be great to give them a few little tips on, you know, maybe what is that first step for them? I know for me, I have a notebook that goes with me to the beach because for some reason sitting at the beach, my brain just clicks into writer mode. I don't know what it is. And I just sit there and I have a lot of uh, run pages with runs on, on them no, from sitting at the that. beach. I write um, in the middle of the night sometimes on my phone. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll realize yes. I put it on notes on my phone. I'm a, I'm a hard copy kind of gal, a pen and paper, and then I'll transition it. Um, one of the best things I ever found were the uh, note cards that have post-it mm-hmm. uh, glue on the back of it yeah. because I can put it down my hallway and then move <laughs> things around. <laughs> On the wall. I did that I mean, with a big cork board when I wrote After Happily Ever After, and I put everything up and then looked at the chapters and then did it that way too. Yeah, I put flip chart paper and then put either sticky notes or I put those note cards with the the sticky on the back of it. Right. And um, it is so easy to move things around uh, because I don't have a large enough space to do uh, like I used to do, which is divvy everything up and leave it laying there on the, on the floor or a gigantic table. Um, so that was always fun and interesting. Uh, but one of the things that I did want to commend you about in the book is how you did not ignore the, um, kind of the male side of this midlife transition And I mean, I know a lot, you know, our focus tonight has been on, you know, women making that midlife transition and um, because, you know, there are a lot of times the one that carry the brunt of it, but then there is the male side of it. And I really commend you for taking strides in the book to really showcase some of the challenges and the feelings from the male perspective as well. Thank you. Yeah. I wanted to do chapters from the male point of views. Um, The father, his chapters are from exactly what he feels and how scared he is and what he's going through and how he feels that the family is going to react to what he's going through. And the husband, yeah, it's, they're both going through their own empowerment in a lot of ways. Um, He and Maggie and men sometimes don't always tell their wives or their partners or whoever what they're going through. Men are a lot quieter as women tend to talk more about what's going on. So I wanted the audience or the readers to see what he's going through and why, and why he's not telling his wife everything that, because they do have a great marriage and they have, and it's really only been six months of this kind of disconnecting going on between the two of them. So I wanted the reader to really see his side of it and yeah. to understand it. 
And I think that was so important because I think right now that um, maybe men are getting a little bit of a bad rap in a lot of cases and they're feeling very um, isolated themselves. And I think this really showcases and having you being a boy mom and mm-hmm. myself as well uh, know that that's their inner worlds are very rich and, but they're not always showcased and they're not um, shown in a really compassionate light. And I think you've done a really great job in this book of doing that. And, um, I didn't want that to go unnoticed because I know that is something that's, that right now is very difficult to do, uh, or it's not done that often. It's either one side or the other. And I think you've taken a really balanced approach to showing every, you know, the, the breadth of the family, And I think that was fantastic. Oh, that's great to hear. Thank you. Because I knew that I wanted to write this book from Maggie's complete point of view and not from a narrator's point of view, because I wanted the reader to really hear what she was thinking and how, why she was doing everything she was doing. But to do that, you would never know why her husband is going through anything and the same thing with the father. So the only way to do that was to have chapters from their point of views. So even though Maggie doesn't know what's going on, the reader understands it. Yeah. I mean, it's a really fantastic um, way to to navigate that. And I think you did a great job and it was very balanced. And I love Thank that. Thank you. Um, is there um, anything that you would like to specifically um talk about that maybe we haven't talked about or anything that you would like to um, kind of expand more on? Um, I think what I would really say is that it's easy to think sometimes that you're alone in something, whatever you're going through, that you're kind of alone. And 99.9.9% you're not. Right. And most of the time, there's somebody out there, whether it's a friend and you're not expressing, like if you can be vulnerable and sometimes just say, you know what, this is what I'm going through. You'll be shocked that other people say, oh my gosh, either I went through that or I'm going through that, or I know somebody going through that. And I think it makes us all feel better to know that we're not alone and that we have this other person or people that understand us and that can give us another perspective on whatever we're going through. Right. Because it is hard. And especially during COVID, it's really hard. And I think people, because we've been so isolated, I think people aren't reaching out as much in a certain way because we're right. not out there. We're not, you know, running into our friends everywhere and, you know, hanging out in a lot of places, especially depending on where you live, you know, some right. places are pretty shut down. So that's probably what I would say the most is just to reach out to somebody. Yeah, I think think it's it's really important. important. I think that is really important because I've found that over the last, uh, from a personal perspective, I found that I have a tendency not to be as vulnerable, but as COVID has gone along, I've become very close with some of my, uh, the people that are in my life and they're much closer friends and even new friends, people that I've met. And I'm realizing that a lot of our journeys are very similar. And even though you feel very, you're very much alone and very much like no one else can do anything. No one else can be going through this like I am. That's, 
absolutely true. You know, they're carrying sometimes the same or worse burdens. And if you are vulnerable, then they will open up as well. It establishes that trust. It does. And I've, I, I think that I, I consider myself a private person, mm-hmm. but I also sometimes, you know, you get to that point where you're like, oh, I don't want everybody to know my problems because then they're going to either feel sorry for me or they're going to, you know, think like, oh, you're not perfect or whatever those things are. Mm-hmm. But the truth is when you do reach out people, you do get closer. You have yeah. a more intimate friendship with these people and you find like, oh, wow, you know, this is like what a real friendship is. Because now we're leaning on each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in the next couple of minutes, would you, um, is there a couple of things that you would like to leave the listeners with? Uh, Yes. First and foremost, I would like to say, I don't care what your age is, whether you're midlife, whether you're in your thirties, you have to take care of yourself. And I don't mean just physically, I mean, emotionally. So if you have a passion even if it becomes a hobby, even if like you have to put dinner on the table, money-wise, you have to make sure that there's enough money and you can't just do something on your time off, try to find that passion and try to work in that passion because it's really important. And if you're in midlife, your life is not over. You know, it may be, people say it's half over. I think there's still so much more to do Mm -hmm. and you actually will have more time to pursue it. Absolutely. Um, if you know anybody who's interested in buying after happily ever after it's available everywhere books are sold um i am on instagram and i am at leslie r author and i love to talk to people so you can follow me you can talk to me you can dm me and ask me questions i go to book clubs whether it's through zoom or you know in person i've done that many times it's a really fun thing i love it I also have a website and it's lesliearasmussen.com and there's a lot of other information on there and there's excerpts from the book. Um, there's places to buy the book, but there's also information about me. And so I think that's, uh, I love, I love talking to people. I do. I really enjoy awesome. it, especially my readers, because I love hearing their perspective, like your perspective on the characters and what yeah. people are going through. Awesome. So thank you so much, Leslie, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I've loved it. It's been fun. Me too. And for all my listeners, thank you so much for joining us again tonight. You can find me at Counterbalance Coach on Facebook and on Instagram. Also, uh, my website is counterbalancecoach.com, or you can connect with me through the host page on Voice America. Thank you so much for joining Leslie and I tonight. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Counterbalance Conversations. Be sure to join your host, Dr. Melissa L. Strauser, for another inspiring show next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next program, be well, be inspired, be the counterbalance.